You are tuned to the Nahum Siegel Network on jmandtheam.org and nachumsegel.com. Stay tuned for JM Sunday with Matis Weingast.
Good morning, everyone, and welcome to another great edition of JM Sunday right here on the Nachum Siegel Network. I'm your host, Matas Weingast, and today is June 21st, 2015, fourth day in the month of Tammuz, 5775. Here in the United States, it is uh, Father's Day, and uh, it is also the first day of summer. If you're studying Daf Yomi, it is uh, Nadarim, Daf 28. And uh, the temperature outside right now, here in the north New Jersey area, as we usually uh, tell you, is uh, that it's 75 degrees, and uh, it is going up to a high of 91 degrees today, with uh, partly cloudy skies, 20% chance of rain. Tonight going down to 73, staying at 20% chance of rain. And uh, in Israel, it is 76 degrees and sunny right now, going down to a low of 58 degrees and clear. We have uh, a great show in store for you this morning. As always, lots of music, including a a great music mix uh, put together by Mark Zamek, one of the workout mixes that you can uh, listen to as you work out, as you go through your day, by getting over to the NSN app. Make sure you have that and you uh, you can listen to those you can listen to those great uh, music mixes, those workout apps, or you know, use them for whatever you want as you're as you're going through your day. So uh, we're going to be playing one of those uh, morning chizuk with Rabbi Goldwasser at 7:30. We will not have the news uh, in English uh, with Hannah Julian this week, as we mentioned last week. Uh, she has a travel day today. However, in the eight o'clock hour, I will be joined on the air by. Dr. Emmanuel Navon, who is the uh, author of a new book entitled The Victory of Zionism, Reclaiming the Narrative about Israel's Domestic, Regional, and International Challenges. And uh, it should be interesting. I have a few questions for him, specific questions that uh, I would like to discuss with him. And uh, that's going to come up in the 8 o'clock hour. So we're going to get to the music, and uh, my thanks for everyone who's joining us today around the world, right here on the Nachum Siegel Network. We're going to start off with Ohad from the album Segula, right here on JM Sunday. Call Hatsadi, Shehoyu Adayoy, 
music by Eitan Katz here on JM Sunday Live in Jerusalem is the album there. Baruch Hu is the name of the selection. It is coming up on 7.30 Eastern Time. 7.30 a.m. Eastern Time. So if you're listening on the archive or on the, um, or on the encore of this show at midnight tonight, uh, you'll know that this was the live time. <laughs> Don't want you to get mixed up. My name is Matis Weingast. I'm here with you on JM Sunday on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com or the NSN app. After Morning Chizuk, we are going to hear a selection that was compiled by Mark Zamek, one of the workout selections, the workout mix, that you can use as you listen to the app. And you can use it for actually working out, or you can use it as a, to get you through the day for something that you're doing, or whatever it is. They're great. So we're going to hear one of those. There's not going to be news from Israel this morning. It's a travel day for Hannah Julian. But at 8.15, I'll be joined by Dr. Emmanuel Navon to discuss uh, a number of topics, but we'll also be talking about his new book. And the name of that book is... uh, the uh, Victory of Zionism, Reclaiming the Narrative about Israel's Domestic, Regional, and International Challenges. Dr. Navon is an expert. He's the chairman of the Political Science and Communications Department at the Jerusalem Orthodox College. Plus, uh, he's involved in a number of other other things, other organizations. We'll talk about that. And that'll come up at about 8.15 this morning. And uh, there, there is so much we could discuss with him. Uh, his his book itself is filled with so many different topics of importance and current events in Israel. Uh, but we're going to focus on something, at least in the uh, in the beginning, on uh, judicial activism in Israel and the makeup of the Supreme Court and how the uh, the court has uh, influenced uh, politics much more than I think people realize, and uh, and why it's set up that way. So we'll talk about that because it's really important in terms of how Israel is um, able to function on the world stage in in certain ways. So we'll focus on that. We'll talk about some other things from his book, and uh, and we'll just discuss with him what he thinks about the ongoings in Israel uh, today, uh, including the uh, the tragedy on Friday of the uh, of the person uh, who uh, who was murdered by a Palestinian. Uh, so we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later on. Uh, it is uh, 7.32, so we're a drop late from morning physic, but uh, Rabbi Goldwasser's words, Here is Rabbi David Goldwasser with morning physic. The great going Rabbi Leo Dessler provided financial support for his father, who was Rav Ruvain, for many years. It troubled Rav Ruvain greatly, to be the recipient of his son's money, and he wrote to him expressing his concern. The essence of Rav Dessler's response to his father is the following. My honored father, I am confused and dismayed by the words of my honored father. I am reading them, and I cannot find any respite. To begin with, how could my father write that I'm not obligated to give him anything? Is there anyone else in the world to whom I am more obligated than to my own father, if not solely for the money that my father expended on me since the day I was born. 
Of course, my father is aware of the maxim that honor is accorded by the son and not the father. Does the Talmud state anywhere that a father is obligated to disperse treasure houses of silver and gold for his children? Is not the time that you spent on my education inculcating me with the proper morals and values? Is that not worth anything at all? Have not the Rosh and the Rajba both ruled that if a person donated money to Tztok and then he lost his fortune, the charitable organization is obligated to support him? If this is true for charity, then what would we say is the son's obligation? Forgive me, exalted father, for the words that I write. They are from a heart filled with sorrow and woe. If only it was possible for me to repay a small part of my debt to you, then I would be able to settle peacefully in the Holy Land. But at this time, the least I can do is to help you cover your expenses. The great tzaddik, Rav Chizkiel Yitzchak, was the son of the Rashash. He was one of the leading rabbis of Yerushalayim. When his time came to leave this world, Rav Chizkiel Yitzchak made a special request of his Talmidim. Instead of lowering his body into the grave, he asked that his body should be thrown into the grave. His students who loved him so deeply, they trembled when they heard this, and they asked their Rebbe why. The Rav explained that once, when he was a young man, he approached the Amud as Chazan, and it was against his father's wishes. He said, from that day on, I couldn't find rest for my soul. My teeth have gone black because of the many fasts that I accepted upon myself. However, I'm still not sure that I've atoned for such a sin. Perhaps, with this final disgrace, my sin will be forgiven. As soon as he finished speaking, his holy neshama soared up to its creator. The students debated the issue, but all agreed it was forbidden for the body of their great Rebbe to be dishonored in such a manner. Besides, they were certain that Rav Chizkiel Yitzchak had done complete tshuva and there was no trace left of this sin. All the citizens of Yerushalayim came to escort the great tzaddik to his final resting place on Harazesim. As they approached the open grave, a band of marauding hoodlums attacked the funeral entourage. The people hurriedly dropped the body of Rav Chizkiel Yitzchak and ran for their lives. Left only with the body of the tzaddik on the ground, the hooligans began to kick it, and they kicked it directly into the gravesite that had been dug. Thus, the last will of the great tzaddik was fulfilled to atone for his only sin, the time when he had ever so slightly infringed on the honor of his father. This has been Rabbi David Goldwasser, bringing you morning chizik. Have a nice day. Yeah.
o'clock in the morning here on JM Sunday. Matas Weingast with you on this uh, 4th of Tammuz edition, June 21st. First day of summer, Father's Day here in the United States. It's a cloudy day here in the New York area. Going up to a high of 91 from the present 71 degrees. And tonight, a low of 73 degrees, also cloudy. In Yerushalayim, it is 76 degrees and sunny and uh, going down to a low of 58 degrees and clear. As I had mentioned earlier and last week, uh, we will not have a uh, the news from Israel this morning. Hannah Julian is on uh, on a travel day, and uh, we'll catch up with her again next week, next Sunday, God willing, here on JM Sunday. Uh, we just heard a, a great music mix that Mark Zamek put together, a workout mix, and you can hear those mixes on the NSN app. So if you don't have it already, if your friends don't have it, make sure to get it. And I'm being told by my uh, by my audience here that we should do another mix leading into our guests. So I think we are going to do that. We will fulfill that desire. 
to uh, do another mix in just uh, in just a moment. Uh, coming up in about 15 minutes, I will be joined by Dr. Emmanuel Navone, author of the new book, The Victory of Zionism. Dr. Navone is a scholar, and uh, we will talk about a couple of issues, a couple of things he writes about in the book. We'll ask him to um, expound on that. He has one, uh, one topic, for instance, here, one chapter, entitled Israel's High Court of Justice Undermines Democracy and Sovereignty. Pretty strong statement. Let's see what he has to say about that. It's a great book, uh, and uh, we'll, we'll talk about it and, uh, in detail coming up at 8.15. They were, we're going to go to uh, to the next music mix, and uh, that'll take us up to our interview. So thanks for joining us, everyone. Make sure to keep it tuned all day long here to the Nachum Siegel Network. And uh, this is just a fast mix. Thanks to Mark Zamek. Come with me across the river, far across the great divide. Come with me. Across the river to the other side Come with me across the river Far across the great divide Come with me across the river To the other side Pack up your things and go To a land that I will show you
That is a music mix that was put together by Mark Zomick. It is one of the uh, workout mixes that you can hear on the NSN app and you can use throughout your day or when you're actually working out or whatever you want. It's just great music. We'll get back to a little bit later on. It's uh, 8.16 in the morning here on JM Sunday on the Nachum Siegel Network. Don't forget that great programming continues all day long here on the stream. And tomorrow morning, Nachum will be on the air from 6 to 9 a.m., with the JM in the AM. And uh, following that at 9 o'clock, on the stream exclusively, Mayor Weingarten with the uh, Israel Show. It gives me great pleasure to welcome to the air a uh, true scholar in Israel who uh, is uh, the author of a new book entitled The Victory of Zionism, and uh, it is a sub, uh, subtitled uh, Reclaiming the Narrative about Israel's Domestic, Regional, and International Challenges I would like to welcome to the air to JM Sunday, Dr. Emmanuel Navon. Shalom and good morning, Dr. Navon. Good morning. It is a pleasure to have you here, and I just want to uh, let people know a little bit about you so that they understand that uh, just uh, you know, besides just writing the book, you are really a scholar, and a lot of times we we hear, I think, from the scholarly side of and the academic side in Israel, more from, I guess, the left. As, a, as opposed to your, your viewpoint and what you've written, you are chairman of the Political Science and Communications Department at the Jerusalem Orthodox College. You're an international relations lecturer at Tel Aviv University and IDC Herzliya. You're a senior fellow at Kohelet Policy Forum and you're a columnist and commentator on I-24 News, among, I guess, a few other things. So you certainly have the credentials as a scholar to uh, write about what is happening in Israel. And uh, we appreciate your joining us this morning. My pleasure. This uh, this book in, is uh, written in a time period uh, encapsulating four years, uh, October 2010 to October 2014. And, of course, the danger in, in giving a time frame is that as soon as you've published it, you're now ready for an addendum to it because we're only a, you know, a few months out from there, but so much has happened you know, since that time. Uh, the... I'd like to ask you first, the, the book is entitled The Victory of Zionism. What is your definition of Zionism in the context of this book? Well, first of all, the reason I, the really, the real reason I called it The uh, Victory of Zionism uh, is as a kind of an answer uh, to Peter Beinhardt's uh, The Crisis of Zionism, which was published, uh, I believe, a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. So that's regarding uh, the title, but I also uh, challenge uh, the general narrative of uh, Peter Beinhardt, because the underlying argument of Peter Beinhardt is that if Israel establishes a uh, Palestinian state, it will do, th- it will achieve three things. It will uh, guarantee Israel's future as a Jewish country and a democracy. A. B. It will solve the Arab-Israeli conflict, and C. It will dramatically improve. Israel's international standing. And when I listen to this argument, I say to myself, wow, this really sounds too good to be true. And it is too good to be true. In other words, it is much more complicated than that. And so uh, the subtitle of the book is Reclaiming the Narrative About Israel's uh, Domestic, Regional, and International Challenges, where I say that, you know, creating a Palestinian state is not going to solve any of those issues. And what I do in my book is to challenge this general narrative and also to provide 
different answers and different directions uh, regarding Israel's uh, domestic, regional, and international challenges. In the hundred chapters that you have in the book, you've divided it into those three categories that you mentioned. And uh, a couple of things that, that I saw, that I read uh, when I read through the book, uh, for instance, on these three topics you just said of the future of Israel, that it'll, it'll uh, you know, the, the current dialogue, the current narrative, the current thinking is everything will be solved with simply creating a Palestinian state. You bring out facts such as that uh, when certain demands are made by uh by uh, the Palestinian Authority, by Mahmoud Abbas, for instance, uh, regarding borders or refugees, that these are absolutely unrealistic demands in anybody's mind. And anybody who thinks them are, are you know, being totally unrealistic. They're just not going to happen, so it's not even a starting point. So to um, to take that position that others have taken, like you just mentioned, seem to not even be in the realm of reality. And you point out, uh, rightly so, how how that is. Yeah, this is why the, the second part of the book is uh, called uh, the, the two-state problem, because people always talk about the two-state solution, and I call it the two-state problem, because this two-state uh, model or paradigm is something that uh, keeps working in theory and failing in practice. And this has been the case, as a matter of fact, since the year 1937, when the idea of partition, of uh, dividing what was at the time the British mandate on Palestine between a Jewish and an Arab state, uh, has been systematically accepted by the Jews and rejected uh, by the Arabs. And in recent years, this was the case also in 2000, in July 2000, uh, when Israel's Prime Minister at the time, Ehud Barak, uh, basically accepted most of the demands of the Palestinians, all of the de- territorial demands, but when he asked uh, Arafat to agree to an end of the conflict and uh, to abandon this so-called right of return, Arafat said no and started a war which is known as the uh, Second Intifada. Same thing in 2008 uh, between uh, Israel's Prime Minister, Ehud Olmert, and the chairman of the Palestinian Authority, Mahmoud Abbas. Uh, just so that you know, in uh, 2008, Ehud Olmert accepted the establishment of a Palestinian state on 99.5% of the West Bank and Gaza with territorial swaps on sharing of the sovereignty of Jerusalem, including the old city and the Western Wall, uh, and uh, the acceptance by Israel of a few thousand refugees, but uh, the Palestinians had to agree to forego what they called the right of return. And then again, Mahmoud Abbas said no. Now, we have to understand that what the Palestinians means by the right of return is not to grant the right to become Israeli citizens only to the refugees of 1948. As you know, during the war of 1948 between Israel and the Arab states, there was a double refugee problem, uh, just like in the case of India and Pakistan. There were about 600,000 Arab refugees, and a larger number of Jewish refugees of about 900,000 who were expelled from the Arab countries and from Iran. Now, according to the Palestinians, the status of the refugee applies to the descendants, and this applies nowhere else in the world. So according to the calculation, there are now today 5 million uh, Palestinian refugees, and they they should have the right to become citizens of the state of Israel, and therefore... 
Israel, which today has a population of uh, 6 million Jews and 2 million Arabs, would become a binational state with an Arab majority. But Judea and Samaria, which would supposedly become the Palestinian state, would be empty of every Jew, because Mahmoud Abbas has already declared that he will not tolerate the presence of a single Jew in the Palestinian state. So the Palestinian state will be Judenreich, right. so the state of Israel would have to accept 5 million Arabs, who are the uh, supposed or actual descendants of the refugees uh, of 1948, and therefore would be would cease to be a Jewish state. Right. It, it seems almost impossible to believe that even his people, Abbas's people, would think that this is a realistic demand that could be met. And yet, the world seems to think, oh yeah, it's part of the issue that has to be discussed. And it's it's almost like the uh, you know the reporter that would ask a politician uh, something like. Um, uh, d- can you confirm uh, the, the the can you or deny the uh, the the story that you uh, you know you 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 beat up your kid when he was younger when when there was no such story but simply asking the question starts a rumor here it's like they make demands and the reaction causes problems like you said with the refugees it they make a statement and then the world thinks that Israel has to answer that when in fact no Israel doesn't have to answer it. They just say, no, we're not, we're not doing that. And I, it, it just seems totally unrealistic even from his side. Why do you think the world, that's a loaded question, accepts them at face value, or is it just all part of the rhetoric that they know is not going to go anywhere? Well, I, I think that the world has gotten used to just listening uh, to the most outrageous claims when it comes to our Palestinians. They just have to say it, and the world listens. And so when it comes to the refugee issue, for example, the fact that there is today a double standard at the United Nations, because all the refugees in the world today, except the Palestinian refugees, are under the authority of the United Nations High Commissioner for Mm -hmm. Refugees. It is only for the Arab refugees of 1948 that UNRWA was created. It is a separate agency. Now, mind you, there never was a special agency created for the Jewish refugees uh, of uh, the 1940s and 1950s. Of course. Only for the Palestinian refugees. Right. But the problem here is it's not only that we have two separate institutions, which is completely unjustified, but according to the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, the status does not apply to the descendants. It is only UNRWA that, uh, you know, applies the status to the descendants. So, for example, between India and Pakistan, when India and Pakistan were divided in 1947, there were 15 million refugees who crossed the borders on both sides. Also, at the end of the Second World War, about 15 million ethnic Germans were expelled from Eastern Europe and made refugees. Now, according to UNRWA, uh, the descendants of all the German refugees of 1945 would be today something like 90 million because of the descendants, right. and they should have a right of return to Poland, to Czech, to the Czech Republic, to Hungary, and of course the 15 million refugees of India and Pakistan in 1947, which today would also be something like 100 million, should be entitled to recross the border in the opposite direction. Now, if anybody would even suggest such a ridiculous and, and, and absurd idea, Imagine what would be the reaction of Poland or of India if anybody would dare to say something so ridiculous. Right. But only in the case of Israel are the Palestinians entitled to say the most atrocious things 
and the world listens. And not only does the world listen, but it, it has the effect that it, it makes policy and keeps policy going. For instance, in the UN, as you just mentioned, now last week there was the uh, report on the uh, on the on the war last summer. And as you know, sure, everybody's read that uh, Ban Ki-moon, the head of the UN, singled out Israel. The report, I think, uh, was for uh, uh, about children affected by war. And, and 32 paragraphs, far more than any other, was about Israel. And, uh, and Ban Ki-moon talked about Israel being the one that has to take greater care in the future. Nobody else doesn't talk about the Syrian uh, civil war. Nothing about that. So they don't only listen to what the rhetoric is from the Palestinian side, it affects how they feel they can, uh, they can, you know, uh, put out reports and, and explain things and, well, they can't pass laws, but, you know, certainly, certainly their policies are affected by it. Yeah, well, at the UN, uh, the Palestinians, uh, the Palestinians enjoy uh, what is called a automatic majority, mm-hmm. uh, because since the uh, 1960s was uh, the uh, decolonization of the third world, and of course at the time during the Cold War, the Soviet Union was able to form a bloc, an anti-Western bloc, uh, with a majority that enabled the General Assembly to pass all kinds of resolutions, especially, of course, as we all remember, uh, the 1975 resolution of the UN General Assembly defining Zionism as racism. At the time, the Arab world completely controlled the uh, the UN, and they still do today, even though the Cold War is over, but this coalition of third world slash Arab world and former uh, communist countries still have a majority uh, at the UN. And this is how, this is how, uh, for example, we should take as an example the United Nations, the General Assembly uh, Commission on Human Rights, uh, which was chaired by uh, uh, Eleanor Roosevelt uh, when it was created, uh, in 1948, mm-hmm. well, uh, guess who was elected chairman of the uh, Commission on Human Rights in 2003? Uh, Muammar Gaddafi, right. uh, the former <laughs> dictator of Libya. And yeah. this just summarizes what has been going on and what is wrong with the UN. Now, talking about, uh, you, we're talking just now about Syria. Well, just last month, there was uh, the World Health Organization, which is a UN, a UN agency, uh, met in order to discuss the problem of health in the world. And the only thing they could talk about was to pass a resolution to condemn Israel about, quote, its violation of the health rights of the Syrian in the occupied Golan Heights. Right. Now, just so you know, Israel has a hospital there mm-hmm. in order to treat the victims of Assad. But Assad was not con- condemned uh, by the World Health Organization for killing half a million of his citizens, which Israel is treating exactly. in the Golan Heights. Exactly. And, of course, what Assad said is that, oh, we are with Israel is only treating them, they're only terrorists, and the only reason why Israel is treating them is so that they can continue to terrorize my people and my government. <laughs> right. So this is the U.N. Uh, the, nothing coming from the U.N. should no. come as a surprise we'll, we'll get off the U.N. topic. Now, the name of the book is The Victory of Zionism, Reclaiming the Narrative About Israel's Domestic, Regional, and International Challenges. My guest is Dr. Emmanuel Navon, who, among other things, is the chairman of the Political Science and Communications Department at the Jerusalem Orthodox College. Uh, let's, let's take, um, the world stage and now go to what happens within Israel. And, uh, what I had mentioned before that I wanted to talk about, um, judicial activism and how it affects the, uh, the, the, the discussions and the laws and what happens. Uh, and I think most people aren't aware of it. Uh, if I understand it correctly, 
of course, Israel, we, we consider a democracy, um, but it has no constitution as such, comparing it to the United States, where the constitution delineates the powers of the different branches of government. Israel doesn't have something like that, but Israel has what are called basic laws, which uh, deal with certain things. It uh, deals with the role of the, the, the state in certain ways, uh, relations between the state's authorities, so to speak, uh, civil rights, for instance. But they were never mentioned. These basic laws were never intended, rather, to be uh, constitutional laws. Now, I'd like you to expound on this, but if I'm correct, what has happened over the many years is that the Supreme Court, in the way it's run, and by the people that have run it, uh, have taken some of those basic laws to be considered constitutional laws against which it can then determine uh, its own power in the Supreme Court and how it can uh, judiciate against other laws. Is that correct, and can you expound on that a bit? Right. So first of all, as you said, and it's true, uh, Israel uh, does not have uh, a constitution, uh, unfortunately. Uh, when Israel proclaimed its uh, independence, uh, at the time, Israel's first prime minister, David Ben-Gurion, uh, claimed that uh, you could not write and proclaim a constitution when a majority of the Jewish people were still living outside of Israel. So it was pushed off, and like anything else in Israel, when you push it off, it lasts forever. <laughs> and, and then, until today, we do not have a constitution, because there's so many different opinions in Israel's political system about what the constitution should look like, that the political parties never agreed about uh, a constitution. So we do have uh, what we call basic laws that determine uh, more or less the powers of the three branches uh, of government, but we never had a text, a constitution, that says exactly what are the powers and the limits of powers of the three branches. And we do not have a written document that specifies the balance of powers uh, in Israel between the three branches uh, of government. Right. Now, what happened is that in the absence of such a document, of such a constitution, there's kind of an open field uh, where the because the uh, the government is so weak, because it's so unstable, as you know, we have a parliamentary system in Israel uh, with a multi-party system which makes every government very unstable, uh, the average lifespan of a government in Israel is two years. Mm. Uh, that's an average since 1949. And because it is so weak, there has been a kind of power grabbing uh, from the judicial power uh, since the early 1990s. Why did it happen? Well, mostly because in 1992, uh, the Knesset voted two basic laws uh, called uh, freedom of occupation and uh, human freedom. Uh, but it was passed only by about 30 members of Knesset. And even though these are basic laws, uh, those members of Knesset had no intention of granting the court uh, the power to strike down other laws based on those basic laws. However, this is exactly what the court decided. Uh, in, there was, uh, in, uh, since 1993, uh, the, the new uh, chief justice of the Supreme Court, the new president of the Supreme Court, Aaron Barak, who was known for his judicial activism, uh, decided to use those two basic laws in order to completely change and reshape uh, the separation of powers uh, in Israel. And basically what he decided unilaterally 
uh, without any decision from uh, the Knesset. This is not something that uh, is the result of legislation. He just decided unilaterally uh, that the Supreme Court of Israel should have the right to cancel regular laws if it decides that it goes against the basic laws. Now, what Barak did also was to cancel what we call standing. In, in other words, in other words, he opened the gates of the Supreme Court to anybody. You do not have to justify uh, your uh, decision to go to the Supreme Court to try and cancel a law. If it doesn't concern you, you don't have to prove it. There's no standing. Anybody can now go to the Supreme Court and ask the court to cancel laws that are considered uh, against uh, those basic laws, even though we don't have a uh, constitution. But then again, Barak also said, you know, everything is justiciable, uh, even political issues. It used to be that uh, the Supreme Court would reject uh, uh, any uh, any appeal about political issues. But now you can go to the Supreme Court about anything, even political issues. Uh, and not only in order to cancel laws that you considered anti-constitutional, but also government decisions. Uh, Barak also said if they are what he called unreasonable, right. not illegal or unconstitutional, but unreasonable. Now, what, what's unreasonable? And his answer was very simple. Whatever I consider unreasonable, unreasonable. is unreasonable. Right. J- just to make it uh, clear for you know, people who are used to the system in the United States, for instance, the Supreme Court is a body of, um, of a limited number of people, nine justices, and... To get a case heard before the Supreme Court can take years of uh, of the other judicial review and decisions as it goes uh, winds its way through the lower courts. Israel has uh, how many how many justices are in the Supreme Court of Israel? Uh, well, it's also it's also a, a similar number, but there's a big difference here. Is that in America the Supreme Court judges are appointed by the president, right? And uh, they has to be approved by the Senate. In Israel, the judges are appointed by the judges. Right, right. That's a big difference. <laughs> it is. And uh, so in Israel, and, and there are also uh, committees that are made up within the uh, Supreme Court, I believe, that to hear different things. So the whole structure is different. And when you talk about standing, you're basically talking about someone, an individual who has a gripe or an issue, is able to actually go to that court, the highest court, and plead the case before going necessarily to any other court. So... It, it, the the uh, Supreme Court has taken upon itself this this power because of the void of a lack of constitution to say hey we you know why not let let's make a decision come before us and we'll decide and there's nobody to challenge that uh, absolutely I would like to uh, get to to this this part how does this affect uh, the day to day operations in terms of Israel and and specifically in terms of you know not 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 like typical uh, domestic issues but when we talk about the world stage and we talk about the problems with uh, with you know Palestinians with with other issues in the world how does it affect the government's ability to handle things uh, with legal standing and also with with some of the reforms you'd mentioned Diella Chaked had uh, instituted or tried to institute some reforms how does that all play in with the day-to-day, because isn't it the prime minister? You know, he's the face of the uh, of the country. Usually, uh, he's he you know, gives the actions, gives the ideas, talks about what the country wants to do. Is is he hampered by this? And you know, how does that all interact on a on a day-to-day basis? Well, the way it interacts on a day-to-day basis is just to give you one example. Uh, right after Alan Bahat implementing his constitutional uh, uh, revolution, what he called, 
uh, he was uh, the the Supreme Court uh, was petitioned uh, by private individuals in 1993 against a member of the government. It was at the time the governor of Yitzhak Rabin in 1993, and one of the members of his government, his name was Rafael Pinchasi from the Shas Party, has been indicted for financial wrongdoing. Now, according to the law in Israel, a minister, a government member, only has to resign. If he was uh, uh, if he was convicted, not only indicted, he had only mm-hmm. been uh, 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 indicted, and therefore he did not have to resign. And the prime minister did not want to fire him. However, some private individuals and organizations decided otherwise. So they petitioned the Supreme Court. Uh, were they entitled to do so? Yes, because there was no more standing. Uh, was it illegal for the prime minister not to fire his uh, minister? Not at all, because uh-huh. he hadn't been. Convicted yet, right. but the court decided that it was unreasonable for the prime minister to keep him in the government. Now, the prime minister said in the court, "This is my position. I do not want to fire him." Except that Aaron Barak had also ruled somehow that the prime minister's opinion was completely irrelevant because he was only interested in the opinion of the government's attorney general, which he turned into a legal advi- from a legal advisor. Uh, to the only authority in charge of the government. So basically, the government now has to obey whatever the general, the attorney general says and not only listen to him. And so at the end, this minister was fired by the court uh, because the court said to the prime minister, I couldn't care less about what you think. I only care about what the attorney general says. And yes, any citizen entitled to come to me and petition me, and even though it is legal for you not to fire this guy, it is uh, unreasonable, in my opinion, mm-hmm. because I decided it's unreasonable. So this is how it works. In other words, if you don't agree with the government decision, you can petition the court, and basically the court says, you know, this is what the attorney general said, and that's only what counts, and therefore uh, the elected officials, I mean, the government is elected by the people, right. but the country is not run by the government. Right. It's run by the court. Amazing. Uh, the the book again. It's entitled "The Victory of Zionism: Reclaiming the Narrative About Israel's Domestic, Regional, International Challenges." My guest is Dr. Emmanuel Navone. We have a, a couple of minutes. I do want to thank um, Mr. Uh, Stuart Schnee, who is the um, publicist for your book, for getting us together and uh, and suggesting that we talk. It's it's been fascinating, and uh, I want to thank him. His uh, website is uh, Stuart Schnee. S T U A R T S C H N E E dot com. And uh, I understand that you're going to be coming to America at some point uh, later this year for a tour. Do you have any details on that yet? Uh, so hopefully I'll be coming in October uh, after the high holidays between October 7 and 17th. And uh, my tour will be including mostly uh, Washington, D.C., New York, uh, probably California and Florida. And uh, my own website is uh, navon.com, N-A-V-O-N.com. Whoever is interested uh, to invite me for a speaking engagement, I'll be happy to uh, add them to the list. Yes, absolutely. We will post that. Uh, I was going to mention that. And uh, the the book, I encourage everybody to get it. It's available on uh, Amazon, all, all different outlets. It's an absolutely amazing uh, set of uh, 100 chapters on different topics uh, regarding current events regarding how, like we just talked about this one topic uh, on judicial activism, how it affects uh, Israel society and law, and you have a couple of different chapters uh, on that. I, I was going to suggest that uh, maybe you could do an index of the book on your website so that if somebody wants to like follow a certain uh, thread, they can, uh, they can find it. Um, 
I always like indices because it, 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 it's a, you know, something to, to look at. Uh, and, uh, already, like I said, you're probably uh, ready for a, a sequel to, uh, to this. Uh, Absolutely. And, and, and you're going to be doing that. Uh, so it's excellent. I encourage everybody to get this book. Uh, it, it, because it's broken down to the chapters and sections, it is an easy read, but it is very in-depth. And you as a scholar, as I mentioned in the beginning, we hear things from the scholarly side, uh, all too often from, from the left, uh, and not with the uh, opinions and the scholarly erudition that you have put together here. It's really an excellent book. Uh, Thank you. And we, we hope to have you on again. Perhaps when you are here in the States, we can get you on uh, again. Uh, I'll throw out something to you. Any comment on the, uh, on the new Oren book? Have you, uh, have you had a chance to read it at all? Well, I haven't had a chance because it's coming out, I think, uh, in two days. So right. I've read already the different uh, op-eds and articles that Michael Oren has, uh, has published. Uh, but, you know, the uh, Mark Twain used to say that uh, uh, it's much easier for uh, wrong rumors and wrong opinions to go around the world. But whenever you say the truth, for example, people get very upset. Right. I think that People are getting upset. It, it must. It has to be that Michael Oren got something right. Uh, sometimes the same <laughs> the point. truth gets people, because people are so used to hearing nonsense that when you actually set, uh, you know, facts straight and say the truth, a lot of people get upset. But I think that the, the reaction themselves uh, are here to point out that Michael Oren obviously must be saying something true. Right. It's. Uh, it'll, it'll be something to uh, to read. And final question. You know, with all that you've written and all that you see. Uh, again, it's a loaded question. I ask it to, to people like you that are on. Um, what do you see as the uh, as the future, the near future, or the further future in, in Israel in the situation? Do you see two states happening? Do you see anything happening in the next ten years, or will it just go back and forth? Well, first of all, I see what's happening uh, in the past few years. Uh, I see a Middle East that is imploding, uh, with uh, states imploding one after the other, Iraq. Uh, Syria, Lebanon, Libya, a, uh, an Iran taking over all those imploded countries as soon as a nuclear weapon, thanks to the Obama administration. And we are basically uh, a success story. Israel is a success story uh, surrounded by failed states. And it is really hard to understand the whole logic of creating, in this context, a 23rd failed and hostile Arab state bordering Tel Aviv. Uh, it just sounds completely counterproductive to me. Absolutely. I, I like. I want to end on this. I like your, your positive statement of Israel as being a success story among the, the failed states, because Israel certainly is a success story that, unfortunately, the world stage does not want to admit publicly, although so many times it does admit to it privately. If, we, if they did it publicly, maybe it would... Uh, it would Quash some of the uh, some of the comments and the people of uh, of our enemies. Right. Again, I want to thank you, Doctor Navone, for thank joining me this morning. Uh, good luck with the book, and uh, we'll have you thank on you. again, God willing. Take care. Bye bye. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Bye bye. Doctor Emmanuel, uh, Doctor Emmanuel Navone, here on JM Sunday. My my thanks to him uh, for joining us this morning. It is. Uh, it's really a fascinating book. I encourage everybody to pick it up. Uh, it is uh, it is filled with information that I think uh, most people are not aware of uh, because it gets into the details of the topics. It gets into uh, very specific things, very 
uh, again, scholarly uh, topics, scholarly uh, opinions, but not in a very deep way that, you know, it's a very easy read. He's an excellent writer. And uh, again, Victory of Zionism is the name of the book. Dr. Emmanuel Navon is the author. We're going to go back to the music mix that uh, Mark Zamek has set up that you can get on the NSN app as we get set to wrap up the show. Thanks for joining me, everyone, here on JM Sunday.
when you're on the NSN app, you can go and hear these uh, workout mixes that Mark Zomick expertly put together, and you can use them to actually work out or to do anything you're doing around the house, around the uh, day, anything that you want. You can uh, you can hear those. My thanks again to Dr. Emmanuel Navone, author of the book The Victory of Zionism, available everywhere, for joining me this morning in a really interesting conversation, and uh, we hope to have him on again at some point. Enjoy the day, everybody. We're set to wrap up the show here on JM Sunday. Great programming continues all day long, and Nachum will be back tomorrow morning, 6 a.m., with uh, JM in the a.m. So till next week, Matas Weingast, wishing you a great day, a great week, and we'll see you here next Sunday morning on the Nachum Siegel Network with JM Sunday.